We are, for those of you joining us, we're in that last few days before the Passion Week starts. Passion Week is the last week of Jesus. That starts with um, him coming down to Jerusalem. He's going to have the triumphal entry. Where we're at in this Life of Christ studies is we're just within a couple weeks before that. Exactly how much, how little, I'm not sure. Nobody seems to know for certain to get those days figured out how many there were. But we're right at this spot. Jesus has gone up to Galilee uh, after a brief foray in the south. He's gone up to Galilee, joined a number of pilgrims, and is marching along outside of Jericho on the um, eastern side of Jericho uh, River, uh, Jordan River, excuse me. He's coming down through towns like Jericho and other towns as he's approaching Jerusalem with this band of other pilgrims and he's getting a crowd because he's the famous um, celebrity at the time. This is when he runs into the lepers. This is when he gets into some discussions and they start asking a few questions um, about the kingdom. They ask him about prayer. He gives that parable, a couple parables about prayer. This is when some of the Pharisees are going to start challenging him and getting him in political hot water as well as hot water with the crowds by asking what his view is on marriage and divorce because it's a very controversial subject at that time. And so Jesus responds and then right away after he talks about marriage and divorce and gives his response, he talks about, hey, by the way, talking about family, let me tell you about children. And he makes an application. You have to be as little children enter into the kingdom. And so he goes on and this is all of a sudden during this time he's approached by a rich young ruler. That young ruler comes to him at the, um, we're in chapter 19, going into chapter 20 of Matthew, and we read the story about the rich young ruler in verse 16 of chapter 19 Matthew. Behold, one came and said, good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? Jesus' response was, why do you call me good? There is none good but God, but one that is God. If you will enter into life, you have to keep the commandments. And he said to him, which one? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father, your mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man responds, every one of these I have kept from my childhood up, my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said, if you will be really spiritually perfect, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and then come and follow me. The young man, when he heard that, what's your Bible read? What's he do? He goes away. What's his emotion? Sorrowful, but why is the reason? He had great possessions. Okay, now what you have here, and we've taught, we're in the midst of this last week, finishing out. This young man who's a Pharisee, he's a ruler. So he's some type of of ruler in the synagogue or within Jerusalem with the temple proper. He is a religious authority, and he comes, and he thinks Jesus... It seems sincere that he, Jesus has some type of authority. He's acknowledging Jesus as a spiritual authority in this whole matter of the kingdom. And so he asked Jesus the question. He seems to me, to me, he seems to be sincere, not, not trying to trap Jesus. The reason I say that is the other episodes usually indicate that they are trying to tempt Jesus or trap Jesus. This man comes, this man goes away grieving, okay? And so it seems to be that this man has sincerity. In fact, in Mark, we pointed out last week, it says that in the middle of this conversation, Jesus has a great feeling of what towards this man? Do you remember? Of love or compassion. He's moved towards this man. Uh, not with any kind of, you know, you know, why are you doing this? You know, I know your heart. It's, Jesus has a different response to this guy. And so Jesus responds with a question that says, why calling me good? We know that what he's pointing out is that only God is this kathos. Uh, the word that he uses that is innately good. And so he's, I think what he's doing is challenging the man. If you really think I'm God, if you really think I'm, I'm on that par, are you willing to listen to me and do whatever I tell you? I think it's a 
probing question to try to see if this man is genuine. And he responds, okay, you need to keep the commands. And again, we know, we understand by comparing Scripture with Scripture, but there are some people who will grab this text and say, oh, see, Jesus said you have to work your way into heaven. That is not what Jesus is advocating. Jesus is asking and challenging this man by those good works to see where this man is spiritually. Because we know that throughout the course of Scripture, when you compare it together, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercies, okay, that we are saved. It is not by good works. But good works will show what? Good works don't get us into heaven, but those of us by faith who are headed into heaven, what will we have in our life? We should have good works. Now the flaw in that, or I mean, it's not the flaw, but the challenge in that is some people will have the good works as well, but they are relying on the good works. And many times when they, when they rely on good works, what do they become blind to? The tr- yeah, yeah, what part of the truth? When somebody is so focused on doing good, doing good, doing good, and I'm doing good, I'm doing good, I'm doing good, what do they become blind to? Okay. Their own, their own situation, right? Why the Lord really came. What don't they see? They see only their good works. They don't see their faults. Okay, and that's very typical, okay? And that's typical of in our society as well as there. So Jesus, his, it doesn't seem to me that he's at all because he'd be inconsistent with what he's taught elsewhere. Um, he's not promoting you have to do good works to get into heaven. What he's trying to do is, okay, the way that a person can get into heaven if, it, if they're depending upon works is they have to be what when it comes to works? How many do they have to go do or what percentage of good works? They have to, if, if somebody wanted to get to heaven and said, I'm going to get to heaven by my own goodness, how many of the laws would they have to keep? Every single one, how many days? All the time, okay? Because once you have, you break the law, you are a lawbreaker. You're a sinner. And so Jesus is trying to get this man to see, okay, you haven't kept everything. But this man is insistent. I have not done all these things. In fact, I haven't done them since, what does he emphasize? Since a child. So my life, and he's obviously he's a moral person. That's okay. Yeah, that's good. But he's very confident in his moral accomplishments. And yet he senses something's missing. Okay? There's an innate sense that there's, there's something more here. And so that's what Jesus is dealing with, not promoting good works to get to heaven, but trying to get the man to see where he's lacking. And so Jesus tells him to do two things. Okay? Go sell all you have and then follow me. Okay? And this isn't, again, good works that would get you to heaven. What this is is to get the man to see where he's lacking. And the man's response, you know, basically is we understand the man goes away grieving because the man loved his possessions so much that he was going to have a struggle letting him go. And if he follows Jesus, now take your scenario. If he follows Jesus, what could happen to his possessions? They're going to be gone. Why? Because what's going to happen to him socially if he follows Jesus? Remember his position? He's a ruler. What what are they going to do with him? They're going to kick him out. And so he loves his position. He loves his possessions. And he's not willing to make this sacrifice for Christ. He He wants to meet God on whose terms? His own terms. Okay, and that's the big issue here. And so Jesus is pointing it out. The man, he goes away, he's grieving. And uh, this man doesn't have allegiance to Jesus Christ. He has allegiance to his moral code. Now take you back, go back again. 
Does that make more sense why he asked the questions? Why do you call me good? Because if you call me good and I'm God, then I set the standards for what is appropriate. This man was not willing to let Jesus set the standards. Correct? Because he goes away grieving. He's not going to work on Jesus' standards. Now, Jesus immediately, when the man is going away, Jesus immediately turns to his disciples and he uses it this occasion that he's instructed this man. He uses it to instruct his disciples. Watch what he does with it. Okay, as you continue in the story, um, we have the young man going away, and Jesus then, verse 23, turns to his disciples and says, a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom. It should be hard, basically, to enter into the kingdom of heaven. I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom. And the disciples heard it. They were, what's their emotions? In verse 25. Okay, exceedingly amazed. What's Matthew want us to catch? These guys were shocked. Not just shocked, they were big time shocked, saying, well then, if these guys can't get saved, if this moral guy can't get saved, who can get saved? And Jesus is going to use this. Now, his comment, and we understand what he's doing, he's going to use, use a different type of speech to give this, this point across, the largest animal in Palestine, that makes sense, it's hard to go through the eye of the needle. Now, there's all kinds of discussion what this is. Okay, and we could, we could banter and discuss this. Some see this as pure symbolism, that, um, that he's just using an exaggerated story that an, you know, just to say this is so impossible, a huge animal can't go through the eye of the needle. Some will say, well, there used to be an eye gate, the, uh, a gate in Jerusalem that was called the eye gate, and it was one of the small little gates coming in, and camels typically couldn't get through there with their wares. I don't know. In fact, there's a, there's a debate even if there was that eye gate from some of the more recent research that, that questions if that's... So I don't know. I, and, and for us to sit there and discuss exactly what it was, his point is this is, this is really an impossible feat. It's, it just looks absolutely incredible for whether he meant that gate or whether he meant the actual needle. The point is, the story is, the implication is, it's really hard for a rich person to get into the kingdom. And that's because of what this man just demonstrated. Rich people typically, typically they are very self-sufficient. They have succeeded. In, and when they compare themselves with others, where do they usually find themselves? Where do they put themselves? Let's put it that way. At the top. So it's very hard because, because for rich people, what quality that's promoted in Scripture is not usually in rich people, successful people's hearts and minds. Humility is not there. Humility, that humble spirit. And so that humility to say, I'm a sinner, I'm not deserving to heaven, that's critical to get into heaven. And so Jesus is, is making these comments and uh, figure of speech, idiom, however he's doing it. The idea is very simple. It's very, very hard for these people to admit that they have a great, great need that they can't meet. That, and quite frankly, in our society, we hear this phrase, you can do anything if you spend enough money. Okay, You can basically get anything done. And so these people are going to have to admit, no, I can't. And so the disciples are astonished. And this is where we stopped last week. The reason that they're astonished, that they're amazed, is in their culture, um, they had been hearing this all the time, going up into the Sabbath schools. They had heard the idea that God favors wealthy people. 
In fact, that's been a theme that the Pharisees and the Sadducees have been teaching for decades, for generations, based upon Deuteronomy 24, where it says that if you are faithful to God, then God will bless you with physical prosperity, talking to the nation of Israel. And if you rebel against me, then I'm going to send you... um, you know, the famine, the different things. Now, they translated that say, if we are wealthy, that means we are really favored of God. We are blessed of God. So they took a truth, they twisted it, different than what it was intended to mean, and the point is they made it to say, personal wealth indicates personal blessings and favor with God. Rich people are guaranteed heaven. And so the Pharisees, that, that explains why they did what they did. The Pharisees were very greedy people as a whole. Most of them would, do, would work out financial uh, rules and laws to benefit them. Why? Because the wealthier I get, the more spiritual I am. That was, that was how it equated in their thinking. Okay, and so um, you know we're big, we're wealthy, we must be blessed of God, and so they tied those two things together and erroneously. And Jesus is trying to correct this, but the disciples, this is what they grew up their whole life. This is what they've heard. This is what's been implied. You need to be wealthy. You need to be wealthy. You need to be wealthy. God favors you, and so there's been a sense of that that's been within that Jewish society for a long time. Is get ahead of everybody else. Be, you know, make money, make money, make money. Why? Because that's tied to, then I'm spiritually blessed of God. God favors me if I make money. Poor people, God doesn't really favor. Now, how they did with some of those Old Testament passages that totally, you know, they're Nehemiah, Ezra, they preached against this. He kind of ignored it, I guess. I don't, I, I don't know how you, how you get away from God loving the poor and saying that you need to love the poor as well. But the disciples have heard this. And this was the whole gist of why Jesus gave that parable of the rich man and Lazarus that was so, so shocking to them, the rich man ends up in hell. That is totally contrary to what they've heard for all those years. This would be like sitting down and telling somebody. Let, let's, pick a, let's pick a typical American church. This is like telling most typical Americans that the clergy are not going to make it into heaven because they're clergy. That would shock most people, yes? This would be like saying to people who, you know, in England, saying the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's the head of their church, he's not guaranteed heaven. They go, What? That's impossible. So that's what's happening here at this moment. And so they're very, very shocked, and that's why they respond. Well, if the wealthy can't be saved, who in the world, then there's no hope for any of us. And Jesus is going to respond to that, and he's going to give a whole lot of lessons to the disciples about wealth and rewards and sacrifice and how God cares for them. And so he starts off with this section of talking to the disciples to give them encouragement. The disciples, they're exceedingly amazed. They're saying, who can be saved? Jesus' response is really, really an important verse for us to memorize at times. He beholds them and he says, with man, this is impossible. No man can save himself. But with God, what? All things are possible. This is very, there's another passage that is very similar, and it's uh, the angel speaking to a young woman. When the young woman says, how can this be? And it says, with God, all things are possible. Do you remember that woman who questioned how things could be? It's Mary when the angel is making the announcement about the virgin birth. It's the same type of miraculous de- dealings. And so Jesus has told the rich man to do two things. You know, give up your business, basically, and come and follow me. Now watch what happens. After the disciples have heard this, then Peter says, hey, we did that. We did that very thing. We gave up our fishing business, and we are following you. Behold, we have forsaken everything and followed you. What shall we have, therefore? What's he asking? 
What's, what reward is it? What, what's the benefit for us? What's, you know, and, you know, what, what can we expect from you? Jesus' response. This is critical stuff for disciples, okay? Uh, and remember, he, he is going to be leaving within the next couple of weeks. He's going to be gone. He's, gonna, uh, he's going to come back for 40 days after the, after the resurrection. Then he's going to be gone. This is teaching time to prepare the disciples for the next few years, Okay, And they need to know this because if they went without teachings of Jesus, if they went by the example and the theology of what they've known in the Jewish faith, what would they as preachers seek after? Okay, What would, what would you, if you were a preacher and you growing up and you, this is all you heard for years, what would be your goal for serving? What would you want to get out of your service? Riches. Riches has been the criteria. Jesus is saying riches is not your criteria. And so he's teaching something spiritually revolutionary to his, his disciples. This is very important. And by the way, if we don't follow the word of God, what is the very typical, what is the trait of false teachers according to the New Testament? What do they seek after? Religious teachers. Money. Money is the primary thing that they seek after. Okay, that we hear about, we read about in the epistles, that preachers, false teachers will target money as one of the major things they go after if they do not follow the principles of Jesus Christ and sacrifice and serve him. And so it's, it's part of our culture, it's a part of our religious association unless we have the spiritual revolution by Jesus Christ that says, wait a minute, it's not about money, it's about serving the master. And so this is a very important teaching that he's going to give to them and he basically says, okay, here's what you can expect. And here's what your goals should be. Your goal should not be make money, make money, and fleece the flock. He's going to say, verily I say unto you, truly I say unto you, here's what you can expect, that you which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit on the throne of glory. That's when he regenerates the earth, sets up his kingdom is what he's talking about. You also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. There you go. There's your spiritual benefit. Remember this. You're going to sit on thrones and you're going to be spiritual leaders in the kingdom. That's, that triggers the, the conversation that comes up in just a few minutes after this. James and John asking that they sit on the thrones that are what? Closest to Jesus. Okay, that's why they're going to bring this up. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sister or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake. That's the key. It's not advocating divorce or desertion. It's for my name's sake. Okay, that you have put me first and it might have cost you your family or your lands for my name's sake. You shall receive a hundredfold and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first. There's a whole lot here that he's talking about. Okay, we understand Peter's asking the question. Jesus says, I'm going to reward you. I'm going to reward you. And the rewards are in this life and the next. There's going to be blessings. If you have sacrificed, I will reward you in this life and the next. And he talks about that, and it includes position. It includes even some people rewards. And by the way, this is true for a lot of you. A lot of you have had this experience where you say, okay, um, my following Christ has cost me some of my family relationships. But how does Jesus respond? He gives you a, a new family. A new family, okay, and it's a hundredfold. Um, you know, for us personally, this, is, this has been the, one of the richest delights in our life. It's you people. Is not being close to our family physically for a number of years. And the kids not being able to develop those close relationships with, with grandparents and stuff. But it's been hundredfold more. 
by you people becoming that family to us and to our kids. And so that happens. A lot of us can have that story. We understand how the Lord provides, the Lord takes care of as we do it. And so Jesus basically is saying, your sacrifices are not going to be neglected, guys. I'm not going to forget them. I'm not going to do it. Then he makes the comment, many of the first shall be last and the last first. Now, what does that mean? Okay, we understand what it means. Okay, somebody's going to move ahead of, of those who think they're first. Now, what is that in, in this context? Is he referring, is he referring to what just happened with the rich man? The people who think they're first, they're going to be last. The people who are poor, who think they're last, they shall become first. Is that what he is saying? That's a possibility in context, right? That he's talking about the spiritual condition and salvation that some who think they're going to be the first one in the heaven. Uh-uh. They're not even going to get in. Okay. Or is it in reference to those who are following Christ? Not their salvation, but those who are serving. The followers of Christ, uh, is this reference to who and when the rewards will be taken place? Okay. The next things he makes throws us in. Are the rewards only for... Now remember, he's talking to the apostles. He's saying, you're going to be rewarded. They were his first followers. Is he saying, you will be rewarded, but you're not the only ones who will be rewarded? In fact, there may be some after you who may have better rewards than you? Is that what he's possibly saying? Well, watch what he does. Okay, in Matthew chapter 20, as he continues on, he gives a parable. And if you and I read this parable with um, just an economic sense and say, okay, economically, this is how we should run business, you're going to fail in business. Okay, you will. Okay, so he's using a parable, not promoting to say, this is how you run your business. I'll guarantee if this is how you run it, you're not going to have employees. Okay, that's not his point. His point is the reward aspect. Watch what he does. The kingdom of heaven, by the way, he, what word does he start the sentence with? That's tied to what he's just said. Okay, remember when the Bible was first written, they didn't have verse markings and they don't have, par- they don't have chapter headings. So in the original, when it's first stated, chapter 30, uh, I'm sorry, chapter, ni- chapter 19, verse 30 continues right with no break to 21. Four ties us to that previous statement. For the kingdom of heaven is like unto a man that is a householder. He's a ruler. He's a rich man. Which went out early in the morning to hire laborers to work in his vineyard. When, they, when he had agreed with the laborers for a penny a day, he sent them into the vineyard. He goes back about the third hour, saw others standing there idle in the marketplace. He said, hey, you want a job? They say, yes. They went there, and he says, I'll give you a job. They went their way. Again, he went out the fifth, uh, in verse five, the sixth, the ninth hour, did the same thing at two other times of the day, did likewise. About the eleventh hour, he went out, found others standing, and said, hey, you want a job? They say, yes. They say to him, because no man hath hired us, he said, go, you shall work in my vineyard, and whatsoever is right, now here's a key phrase, whatever is right, that shall you receive. Okay. So when evening was come, the Lord of the vineyard said unto his servants, uh, unto the steward, call all the laborers, give them their hire, beginning from the last unto the first. And when they came that were hired at the eleventh hour, they received a penny, a day's wage. But when the first came, they supposed that they were going to receive more. They likewise also received the same amount of money okay, as the ones who worked the eleventh hour only. And when they had received it, they murmur against the good man of the house, saying, These last have worked but one hour, and you gave them equal unto us, which have borne the burden and the heat of the day. Okay. Would this be a union shop? Okay. Okay. Would you want to work in this situation? 
Would you be upset? Yeah, we would be. Let's, let's be frank about it. Most of us aren't that charitable that would say, wait a minute, Brian started working. I agreed to work from 7 until 5. Brian started at 4. You're paying me the same as you're paying, paying Brian. And I was here at 7 o'clock. Most of us would be upset. True? I mean, that's true. That's why I say I don't think you want to advocate business practices off the parable. Okay? Don't, don't run your business that way or you won't have any. You will have workers who want to work one hour. Okay, you'll, you'll be where society is today. Okay, I want to work one hour. That's not what he's getting at. He's not advocating business principles. He's advocating different principles. So be careful with this text. You know, be careful with any text that you get to what is he advocating? What is he, what is he saying? And let's not say, okay, well, you know, they wore togas, therefore we must wear togas too. Um, you, you can't do that. Okay, you have to know what the sense of the scripture is. And so what he's basically doing, here's your story, that with their time frame, according to what he's doing, that he's got these people coming and working at different times of the day. Now, what is interesting is go to the 6 a.m., the, the phrase that is here. At 6 a.m., the workers agreed to work for the penny or the denarius. They agreed. Then, when he hires after that, there's no agreement of what the amount is. It's just, I'll pay you what is right. There's no agreement. That's critical in what he's going to conclude here. Okay? It's just there's been... One group has an agreement. The other is just, I'll I'll deal, deal with you fairly, is what he's saying. So he goes on, at the end of the day, he pays everyone the same amount of money. And as a result, they're going to be very, very upset. They got, you know, the ones who started earlier. The response is really interesting. The landowner, when he answers one of them, verse 13, friend, I do you no wrong. Did you not what? This is what you agreed to. This is what we contracted for. I am fulfilling my end of the contract you have no complaint with me. Okay? If I want to be generous to somebody else, that's my business. Okay? But I'm not dealing with you unfairly. I'm giving you what we agreed to. That's very important in, the, in understanding where he's going with this. Okay? And he says, take what, you, what is yours and go your way, and I will give unto the last whatever I choose to give unto the last. In other words, as the employer, it's my business what I pay the employees, not your business. Even though you're one of my employees, I can pay whatever I wish. Okay? Now, again, this isn't a union shop, but this is the way this worked at that point. And so he goes on and he says, Is it not lawful for me to do what I will with my own, with my own, with my, writ, with my payments? Is your eye evil because I am, you're going to be upset because I'm generous to people? People who didn't have jobs and I was assisting them. So the last shall be first and the first last. Many are called, but few are chosen. Okay. So what's he getting at here? He's getting at this thought. I treated everybody fairly. Um, They had no reason to be upset with me because I'm being generous. And if I'm going to be generous, you have no reason to be jealous that I'm generous to somebody in need. Um, His idea is the first shall be last and the last first. I think what he's doing is he's highlighting God's fairness and God's graciousness. And I think it applies in this sense of rewards, salvation, and rewards. Okay. Here's where we go. Let me, let me give you an illustration of this. Can somebody get saved in the, uh, in the foxhole, in the middle of battle, in desperation? Can an atheist turn to the Lord? Will God hear them? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. This could be moments before they die. And they didn't live the way you lived. 
They didn't sacrifice the way you sacrificed. But they repent on their deathbed in a tragic moment. Is it fair for God to save them? It's graciousness. God, what's that? Not willing that any should perish at, at all. Not willing that any should perish. So the point is, can somebody come at the last hour to God and God will still be gracious to them? Yes. Sometimes we don't understand that. Sometimes we look and say, but their life, the way they lived, and you know, they did this, they did this. But at the last moment they repented and they're going to get into heaven? And my Christianity, I went through all the battles of Christianity and I sacrificed and I did. And it's like, now wait a minute. It's all by grace. And for God to be gracious to them, we shouldn't be upset. Yes? Okay. That. What about the rewards that are given? Could God give somebody who has labored only for, been saved only months, and they might get rewards equal to somebody saved 10 years? Could they? Sure. And we should not be envious or jealous, okay? Whatever. Now, here's the blessing of it. When can we get saved? When can somebody get saved? When can somebody start serving the Lord? That's, that's what he's talking about. Now, should we take this and say, well, then I'm not going to serve the Lord until, I, until the very last moment of my life. We, you don't know when that is. Okay, you'd be an idiot. Okay, you'd be an idiot. And that's not, that's not responding to the love of God. Okay, that's, that's, that's a whole other issue. In this issue, in this topic, he is talking about, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And you, my servants, we, whoever he rewards, it's going to be, so be it. So be it. And so it's very important that we understand that. Jesus knows. Now let's take the entire, the entire account. Rich man, Jesus dealing with him, turning to disciples. It's hard for a uh, camel to get through the eye of the needle. And then what about our rewards? Listen, I, another, what he's answering, Peter, his bottom line is, yes, I'll reward you in this life and the next. But let me tell you, whatever I reward, it's my business. It's my business. That's what he's basically saying. And it's all one compact passage that he's talking about that teaches this. Jesus knows all the spiritual faults of all people. Or should we say the spiritual condition. He knows even the people who are morally right and upright and really outstanding. He knows where their needs are. He knows where there's a flaw. In other words, the moral and religious people still have sin issues. That we know is true. All of us who are born again say, that is a fact. Amen, amen, amen. Even the moral person, which he talks about in the whole book of Romans, where he's talking about, uh, Jonathan, you just talked, which chapter is focusing on the moral man? Do you remember? Two, three? I'm sorry, I put you on the spot there. It, it, he has a whole section right in the first part about the moral people. Yeah, okay. That he has a whole section about the moral people. and how, Even the moral people are... Sinners. Okay, he talks about that. Moral and rich people often do not see their own spiritual weaknesses. That's a fact. We know that. Okay, uh, or bankruptcy before the Lord. Moral and religious people still need to be confronted with the gospel message. They all need it. They got to have it. We got to have it. Everyone needs this gospel message. Spiritually, here's an illustration. Spiritually probing questions are often very effective in dealing with lost people. Okay, instead of me just saying you're a sinner. You're going to hell if I can bring him along to think with me and say, well, what does this passage say about this? What does this passage say? According to this, what does this say about you and me? That, you, you start, that person starts owning it 
as we give probing questions. And that's a wise way of sharing the gospel that can be very, very, very effective, which Jesus did with this rich man. Do this, do this. You know, have you, have you done this? Okay, it points out his own weaknesses. Um, let's continue on. Those who follow Christ will suffer some losses. He's indicated that. You've given up family. You've given up, you've given up friends. You've given up possessions. And that's true. That's going to happen. That they are going to, they are going to, you and I, if we follow Christ, we'll have to, and by the way, we might not just, we might not give up personal possessions right now. We might give up potential possessions. Does that make sense? If we start following Christ and we come to a crossroads in how we're going to do our business, I could make a lot more money if I, no, ethically, I can't do that. So I might lose some money. Sometimes we give up potential invest, uh, gains for the cause of Christ. Those who follow Christ actually lose nothing when they've given a lot up for him. You know, we hear this frequently from some people say, well, if I start serving Christ, I'm going to give up so much. Yes, in a temporary sense, but you're going to gain so much more. You've got to take that long look. Serving Christ faithfully will result in rewards in this life and the next. Okay? Problem is, you and I live in such a microwave society. We want everything, how fast? Right now. Oh, well, me, I don't want it now. I want it yesterday. Okay, that's the way some of us operate. Some of you are more patient. But that whole idea of, okay, I want rewards and I don't want difficulty. I want everything right now. God provides multiple blessings in life. He talks about even some of the, the reward of family and relationships and even in the future there's positions, possessions, okay, that will help us enjoy what is really important in this life, okay? And it is that relationship with Jesus Christ that he says is so important and I'll reward you for it. God treats no one unfairly and everyone fairly. No one is treated unfairly. Everyone is treated fairly in the sense that here's what I've warned you. This is what you, you will receive. And I'm not being unfair with anybody. And so let's continue with that thought. God always is faithful to his word and what he promises his servants. He is always faithful. There will be those blessings, those rewards with the difficulties. He is gracious with the rewards that he distributes. In fact, I am always amazed by this, this thought. That he promises rewards in heaven. This, this just amazes me. He says, I'm going to reward you in heaven. He's the one that made heaven possible. Yes? But I'm going to reward you. Why? Why? Who enables us to do the work? He does. Who enlightens us to do any kind of service? He does. Who helps us to do the service? He does. Okay? You can do nothing, you know, within us. There's nothing to be able to accomplish spiritual service. We do spiritual service, and it's only by the power of Christ. And then what does he do? He passes us on the back and says, great job. I'm going to give you a reward for what you did. But in reality, he did it. Isn't that amazing? You know, the silly illustrations like, you know, the child learning to mow and, you know, walking with dad mowing. And who's really pushing the mower or controlling the mower? Okay, dad is. But what does the dad say to the kid after it's all done? You did such a great job. I couldn't have done it without you. Really? Really? You probably could have done a better job without, you know, falling over the kid and me leaving all those skips along the lawn. But the dad just commends the child, and that's what Jesus does for us. It's absolutely amazing and gracious. Now, here's a thought that ties in it. No matter when in history, when in the eons of history, 
or in one's personal lifetime, a person gets saved and serves Christ, they will be accepted and rewarded. Okay, here's what I mean by that. The apostles had much more difficult time in persecution than you and I. Would you say that's a truism? Okay. So are they the only ones getting rewarded? No. So in the history of time, they lived in a, more pers- in a society far more persecution. Okay. Um, the people in northern Africa, the Christians there, have had much more persecution than we have in recent generations. Okay, some of them have died. We'll share next week about some of the stories that some of them went through. That they died in the persecution because of the Bible. That they held within their, within their grasp. If they had a Bible, their life was threatened and several were killed. Okay, so you have those people. We don't have that. So who's going to be rewarded? Just them? All of us. All of us are going to be rewarded generously. Okay, well, so it's just like when in your lifetime. If you got saved, some of you grew up in a Christian home. You've been serving Christ since you were a child. Others of you got saved in your latter years. Who does he favor with entrance into heaven? Yeah. Who does he favor with rewards? All who are faithful. And so that's the grace of God. God's grace to latecomers should never result in complaint or feelings that it wasn't fair. We should never have that attitude that it's not fair. Thank God that the person repents and gets saved, even if they're on death row. We thank God for that. It's never too late to get saved or to serve. That's the beauty of this. Okay? Is this is a passage that is encouraging never too late to serve Jesus Christ. Never too late to, to uh, get born again. So from that, Jesus starts teaching a little bit more. And he's talked about rewards. Look what he does right after that. He starts talking about his death. He goes from a rewards to an idea of Jesus going up to Jerusalem, took the 12 disciples apart in the way, and he says to him, now he's with the crowd, he's teaching, he's talking. But now he says, hey, by the way, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. They shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock, discourage, to crucify him in the third day that he shall rise again. Okay, so he's talking about very pointedly what's going to happen within the next week or 10 days. As he's telling that, by the way, let me remind you, this is the first time he's mentioned this. He's mentioned it in the other Gospels. There are records of Jesus telling and predicting his death uh, prior to this point and giving them the information. So he's been saying this. He's been saying this. What has been some of their response in the past? Jesus, you shall... Never go up there. And Jesus has to respond and say, get thee behind me. And they don't get it. They don't get it. Okay. Now he says it again. And by the way, you can add this is your, your, in your footnotes. This is the most explicit that he gets in prediction of his death. They've never gotten this much detail before. In gospel, this time at this moment, he's giving them more detail about the betrayal, more detail about the Gentiles' involvement, the scourging. He is giving a lot more detail at this moment than what he's ever said before. So he's giving them you know, much more information. And this is delivered. They're on their way to Jerusalem. Now think about this, okay? You're on your way to Jerusalem, and you're getting close. You know, you're a horizon or two away, and he says, oh, by the way, when we get there, I'm going to die. What would be your response? I don't want to go there. I don't want to go. Do you remember when just a couple of weeks before this, they went to Bethany, and he says, because Lazarus is sick, and we need to go to Bethany, and Thomas says, wait a minute, the last time we were in Jerusalem, they tried to kill you. Do you remember that? 
And he says, well, we need to go while it's daylight until night. And they say, okay, if we go, we die. They were willing to go, okay, but they were still miles away from Jerusalem. Now they're going into the den of, or should we say into the mouth of the lions? Now they're really going. And their response, does it say here what their response is? No. Mark does. Mark tells us, okay, that they are amazed and feared. Uh, yeah? Do you understand why? Yeah, this is, this, if he dies, now think about this. If he dies, they've given up everything for this guy. Okay? Then, in their mind, everything has been, been for nothing. It's been a waste. Okay, they still don't understand everything. Okay, and if he gets arrested, chances are we're going to get arrested. Yeah, does that make sense? Because you've been with him all this time. So this is kind of an unsettling situation for them. Luke adds this. He says the, uh, the disciples, here's how Luke describes their feelings. They understood none of these things. The saying was hid from them. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Now, why didn't they get it? He's already stated it multiple times. This is like time number eight or nine that he stated it, and they still don't get it. 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 It doesn't make sense to them. You would think hearing it once is enough. Because when you tell your kids something once, and it's done. Yes, no? No. When the doctor sits you down... And says, we've got your biopsy results. They lay it all out. You walk out and you go, and then somebody says, so what'd they say? <laughs> Oftentimes, people will say, I don't know. Why? Because what happens? Y- yeah, you're so struggling with accepting just one iota. What do you hear about all the other details? You don't. Why? So what do we often say? It's important when you go to the doctor for a critical consultation, you do what? Take somebody with you who can hear and can, because the doctors will say, okay, they'll look down and say, you've got this, this, you know, terminal cancer. Do you have any questions? And you're going, I don't have a single question. It's not that you don't have questions. It's you're shocked. So the disciples are in that mode that they're just, they just don't understand what's going on. Now, understand what they've done. In the last three weeks, let's put, let's put the scenario. They saw him raise somebody from the dead who had been dead for how many days? For, and what was his body doing? It was decaying. This guy can't die. He's conquered death. This is impossible. He just was talking. Yesterday or the day before, he gave a lecture about the kingdom that he's setting up. He can't die. He's going to set up a kingdom. He just promised us what in the kingdom? Just moments before, what did he say we're going to get? We're going to get seats, thrones in the kingdom. He's, how, how can he die? He's going to reward us. If he's Messiah, he's not supposed to die. Again, they don't understand Isaiah 53. It doesn't click with them. They think he's going to, at this point, even though he's made comment, it's like, okay, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, yeah, sure. Okay, it's re- and so they don't understand. They're in this daze. They don't get it. They don't get it. And so Jesus is predicting. Now, what they do get 
is what happens the next phrase. Watch how they think. While Jesus is talking about, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, what is their response? Look at the next verse. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children and her sons, worshiping him and desiring something. He said, what would you like? She said, grant that these my two sons may sit on the right hand and on the left hand in your kingdom. Do they believe that he's setting up a kingdom? Yes. Do they believe he's going to reward them? Do they think it's happening soon? Yes. Do they think he's going to die? No. And while he's talking about his death, what are they talking about? Their reward. Their reward. They, they are, now, this would never, ever happen to you. you he, they are hearing what they want to hear in his message. That would never happen to anybody else. That you only hear part of what's being said. The part that you like. Okay? So with that in mind, every one of us knows what they're going through. Because we do that, don't we? We hear the parts that are like, okay, yeah, that, that feels good. And so he's going to give them that message. He's going to give them that, that whole point. And by the way, just to add this information, this is a relative of Jesus. This is, um, if we put the scriptures together, the mother of James and John is a sister to his mother Mary. So they're cousins. And so she's not just asking for anybody. She's asking for his closest relatives. Why, why would somebody being a close relative ask for a favor from a close relative? Is that the way things operated? Do they still operate that way? Is there nepotism? Okay. So he's saying, okay, this is, she's not asking for anything weird. She's asking for what would seem to be very normal in that culture, in that society. And so, by the way, she asks, and the boys also ask. So it's, it's, a, it's not one passage says she's the speaker. The other passage says they're the speaker. So they're in harmony. They're asking. So he's got, an, uh, he's got respect towards an aunt. He's got two cousins that have given up a lot for him. And he's already said to them, I'll give you seats in the kingdom. So they're not asking for something that he hasn't suggested already. But the irony is why he's talking about his own suffering. They're looking at what they get out of it and how they benefit. And Jesus is going to take this and and turn it to give one of the most impacting messages to his disciples that he can preach. In fact, I think it is still to this day one of the most impacting messages, what he's going to say, okay, if you want the kingdom seats, one, you don't know what you're asking for. But if this is what you want, here's what you need to do. And he gives them one of the most potent, powerful messages or demands for rewards that we can ever study. And it deserves more than two minutes, so let's stop. Okay, we'll pick up next week and talk about what is required for kingdom rewards. Thanks for listening.